I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash hi. Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, это Prevail. И ваш ведущий Грег Олег. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show today. Rachel Slade is here. Rachel is a journalist and the author of a fantastic book called Into the Raging Sea, 33 Mariners, One Megastorm, and the Sinking of El Faro. She's also written a couple pieces for me at Prevail. So you can go check out her work there. You can go check out my work there. Please subscribe to the Prevail website. We would love that. I know Rachel because she reached out to me right around the time that Ghislaine Maxwell got indicted and arrested because she was with this guy named Scott Borgerson, who is the CEO of Cargo Metrics, which is a company that involves maritime stuff. We talk about it in the podcast later on. And Scott Borgerson is also either the boyfriend or the husband of Ghislaine Maxwell. And she was like, oh my God. So she called me and I wrote this, this piece about him right away, like the same week that that story broke. And then she came on and wrote a couple more pieces, um, which are really great. And, you know, the thing about Rachel is she's interested in shipping now because she wrote the book about the, the shipwreck, which we talk about. And she got me to go down this rabbit hole of shipping. And, you know, honestly, I'm one of these people I'm like, you go to like Cape Cod or something or down the Jersey Shore and there's these stores that sell like nautical stuff. And I'm always like my eyes roll in my head like it's I don't care about that at all. But in fact, the more I started to read about all this stuff in, in the modern era, the more fascinated I became about shipping and logistics and 
boats and who owns what and how it all works because you know we get stuff from all over the place nothing is made here anymore we talk about that on the podcast also it comes from elsewhere how does it get here it gets here mostly on these ships in these container ships so anyway it's, it's a fascinating subject and we talk about a lot of fun things a lot of really interesting things including the hoodie and how the hoodie she argues is the the purely quintessential american garment now it is tuesday late afternoon july 20th as i'm recording this this is going to release on friday of course and i'm a little bit wary about talking too much but what happened today is that tom barrick got indicted tom barrick trump's good friend yeah tom barrick the guy who according to an article i read today was such close friends with trump that he was actually comforting him at fred trump's funeral he's a guy who's been in his ear for years and years he's the guy that suggested that trump pick paul manafort their mutual acquaintance to be his campaign manager he's mixed up with this uae stuff uae the united arab emirates that's where eric prince hangs out they are an ally of saudi arabia these guys are working with apparently hostile foreign governments and that's what the indictment is all about so i'm feeling a little giddy about this because this guy is um I know most people haven't heard of him so much. He's not a somebody that, that, that is a name that most people would recognize. But this guy is very, very important. And he is very close to Trump. He's close to Eric Prince through the UAE stuff. He's close to Manafort. He's close to Epstein. There's lots of uh, ties that this guy kind of brings together. And what happens now is going to be very, very interesting. So uh, before we get started, I'm just going to say right out, I've been critical of Merrick Garland. If this is the beginning of something, they're going to take down these people, then I'm just going to shut up about that for at least a week. So, you know, he's done some things that I don't like, but going after this scumbag is, is really good. This is very good news for justice. Speaking of which, you know, I draw these tarot cards in the morning. One tarot card every morning. I think I talked about this on one of the podcasts. Yeah, the podcast with, with Asia Raiden. I talked about my stupid and silly belief that I pick these tarot cards every morning. I shit you not, this morning, Tuesday, July 20th, the card that I picked, Justice. Swear to God, that was the card I picked. And I guess what that means is that um, Tom Barrick is going to get indicted and probably going to go to jail. Oh, well, so sad, too bad. So I have no new news on this. I suppose maybe I'll write about him at some point. Maybe we'll do a man in the middle Tom Barrick piece because he seems like he's one of those guys that's in the middle and, and is occupies that center of the Venn diagram where lots of different things overlap, right? So probably I'm going to get to work on that one of these weeks. But in the meantime, what we're talking about now is the high seas. We're talking about maritime stuff. We're talking about the Jones Act. We're talking about shipping. And there's nobody knows more about shipping than Rachel Slade. This is a really fun conversation. Um, I was fascinated by it. She's really just a wealth of knowledge about a lot of different subjects and really fun to talk to, as you will see. As you will see. As you will hear in the interview right now. 
from executive producer Mark Burnett, it's the new non-woke weekend sketch comedy show, Saturday Night Live, starring Eirstie Alley, Scott Bayo, Roseanne Barr, Gary Busey, Stacey Dash, Dennis Miller, Dennis Quaid, Kid Rock, Antonio Sabato Jr., Rob Schneider, John Voigt, James Woods, featuring Lauren Bobert, Diamonds and Silk, Brett Favre, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a bunch of boxers and ex-pro football players with late-stage CTE, musical guest Lil Pump, and your host Donald Trump. Ladies and gentlemen, Donald Trump. Rachel Slade, welcome to the podcast. Woohoo! Excited to be here. No, I'm excited to have you. Um, so before we get started, how are you handling the coming out of quarantine? Because I talked to you a couple times during quarantine and you seem to be maybe not handling it so great. I don't know. <laughs> Wait, have we come out of quarantine? <laughs> I'm out of, I mean, we're, you know, in New York, we're out of, we're effectively out of quarantine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that effectively is, is an important modifier right there. I mean, I'm still, you know, walking around with a mask. And actually I just spoke to not one, not two, but four people in LA who have had breakthrough cases. So not to be a Debbie Downer or a Rachel Downer, um, but I don't know, Greg. I don't know. I don't know either. The the, the variants are, are here and, and whatever. I, I tend to, what I do is if I go to a store now and if the people are wearing a mask, I put a mask on. If the people aren't, then I don't. That's basically. That's very counterintuitive. Yeah, because I don't want, like, it's weird because now here in, in upstate New York, which is, you know, we're in a place where it's reasonably safe and we don't have as many dipshits who refuse to get vaccinated. So <laughs> we're kind of okay and a little bit maybe you know, better than a lot of places in the country for sure. Yeah. But, you know, the signs say wear the mask if you're not vaccinated. And I don't want them to think that I'm not vaccinated. See, now here's the dilemma, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're walking around or me, in my case, walking around with my mask. And yeah, I look like one of those assholes. Except but that I want, I want to like wear a sign that says, yes, I'm vaccinated. No, I'm not one of those assholes. However, I'm not convinced it's over. I'm a paranoid you know, anxious Eastern European type. And this is what we do. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the, the, the other, the counterintuitive of the counterintuitive, I guess, full intuitive then is that <laughs> the people that are not vaccinated are also not going to wear a mask. So I guess one can assume that, especially somebody who's older and wearing a mask is wearing a mask, not because they're not vaccinated, but because they're trying to be socially conscious. Which okay, I'm so here's this weird decision tree, right? Because you said that when you go into the store and they're not wearing masks, yeah, then you don't. Right. Except that if they're not vaccinated, there's no way that they're going to be wearing a mask. So then go back to that decision tree and maybe we can assume that they're not vaccinated. That could be, or they just are. And it, you know, it just depends. Again, for me at this point, it's just about politeness and making people feel comfortable right. with other people. Like I'm, I actually did start wearing the mask again, like inside the stores when this Delta variant starts coming around. Cause I said, 
I don't know. You know, I don't want to get it because I, I, I need mask freedom when I'm buying my like romaine lettuce. <laughs> like I can handle wearing exactly. the mask for, you know, a few minutes. I wore it into the bank the other day and I thought, do they want me to wear this? <laughs> you mm -hmm. know? Yeah, I mean, we're, I, we're really we're really in a very bizarre position at this point. But all I have to say is I like my apartment. It's fine. It's been good to me. I think I think we're going to continue to be close friends, my apartment and I, for the next year or so. Um, for people listening, which is everybody, because this is not a video, you know, broadcast, you have a very nice apartment. You have cool artwork <laughs> behind you, which we discussed before hitting the record button. So it is a it does look like a pleasant place to to uh, while away months and months of of not going outside. <laughs> well, thank you. Yes, yeah, we have enjoyed it. Um, although I convinced the neighbors upstairs to let us use their apartment for our Zoom meeting spillover. So oh. when, there, when there are just too many goddamn people on Zoom calls or whatever in this apartment, by the way, you're hearing my robot feed my cat, so I don't know if you can hear that, but um, then okay. we can spill over upstairs. Okay, well, that's nice. You know, it, it, it's, you know, teamwork makes the dream work. That's, that's what I always say. <laughs> it's actually never what I say. It's just, I, I don't know if that is that like on a poster with the, where the cat's claw is coming down and, um, you know, but that's like hang on or whatever that, you know what I'm talking about? That poster. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe like Patrick Byrne has that on his wall or somebody like that. What are these, <laughs> you know, Mike Lindell. I don't know. Um, yeah. No, you're talking about those things you used to buy off a of sky mall, right? Where you would yeah. have like a picture of the sunset and it would say leadership and then some <laughs> nonsense. <laughs> I mean, the sun really is a leader because once it goes down, <laughs> you know, stuff does start to happen. So. Anarchy. Anarchy. Yeah. Solar. Prevail. Solar anarchy. Okay. So I want to, I want to, first of all, before we get started, I have your book here, which is called Into the Raging Sea. I should read the subtitle also. 33 Mariners, One Megastorm, and the Sinking of El Faro. Um, I have read Magic your book. Please. It's really, really good. I'm not the okay. only one who thinks so because my copy here has a little uh, decal on it that says a notable book of the year by some little rag called the New York Times Book Review. So I'm not the only one who who thinks this. Um, so before we get into all the other stuff we're going to talk about, tell me, tell everybody a little bit about that. What, how did you get interested in that story? How'd you get into ships, man? You know, I didn't know anything about ships, but I have lived on the East Coast my whole life. And I was born in a big port city, raised in a big port city, went to school in a big port city, and now live in a big port city and all different big port cities. Um, so I, I think, you know, there was just a part of me that was like connected to the ocean, connected to shipping. And especially here in Boston, where I live now, you know, this is a former port town. And this is really where a lot of, you know, commerce got started. And most of it was via ocean. But, you know, so this book is actually, I, I'm surprised, but a lot of people don't know that in 2015, so just six years ago, the Americans lost a container ship. So an American container ship, and we don't have that many anymore. We have a very small fleet, um, sailed out of Jacksonville, Florida, and went right into a hurricane. It was October 1st, 2015, and um, disappeared. The ship literally disappeared. We lost it for weeks. And there were 33 people aboard. All of those people were lost with the ship. And together, taxpayers, all of us, spent $3 million first to locate that ship and then locate the uh, what's called a voice data recorder 
on the ship. So this is now 15,000 feet down. They had to find this little coffee can size data recorder. Um, and then the Coast Guard, uh, working with the National Transportation Safety Board, actually was able to bring that little thing back up to the surface, download um, the audio. And it turned out that there was 26 hours of conversations captured from the bridge of that ship leading up to the very final moments uh, when the ship went down. So um, it, as a journalist, it was just this incredible thing that I had, I would say it's probably um, the most documented shipwreck in the history of the world. You know, we have obviously shipwrecks starting with Noah, or I guess it wasn't <laughs> a shipwreck, but I mean, ship stories, you know, we have lots of ship stories over, over millennia, but none have ever been captured this way before, you know, time stamped every minute, every hour, these conversations of people deliberating, you know, privately aside or with the captain, how to deal with the weather that they were seeing on their screens and they were hearing over the radio and they were, they were getting from the National Weather, um, the National Hurricane Center. So it's, it's an incredible thing that I had and I was able to use those conversations, which were transcribed, um, as well as six weeks of hearings that the National uh, Safety Board conducted to put together this book. And, you know, the, the why I think people ask me, and it's just like, I could not turn away from this. As soon as I heard that a ship had gone down, you know, in this day and age, yeah. a modern ship with, with satellite communications and, you know, all the weather service forecasting stuff aboard and everything else and all the training of these guys get, you know, $25 million worth of goods on the ship, an American ship. I was, I was riveted. I could not look away. And then the other thing is that, you know, there were eight people from New England aboard that ship, including five from Maine. The captain went to Maine Maritime. I'm up, I'm here in Boston. I feel very close to Maine. And I was just like, wow, people still make a living on the sea and they still they still sometimes lose their lives on the sea. So what is this all about? I just threw myself into it. So that's the long answer, but the short answer is, yeah, I didn't know anything about uh, the merchant marine and American merchant marine or, or shipping or trade or anything like that, but um, I got a crash course and uh, it was a very intense couple of years reporting and, and writing that book. It's, it's a, it's really a wonderful book. I mean, it's, it's, I got chills just listening to you describe it right now, having read the book and coming back to parts of it and, you know, the way that you construct the story and go through and, and we meet the people that, that, you know, that died in the, in the shipwreck, which is really, you're not thinking that that's going to happen, like you said, in this day and age. And it all boils down to like human error and greed and corporate fuck ups and this and that. And it's, it's just this, it's a big tragedy is what, it, you know, there, there's no, there's no two ways about it, but you, you did a, a just a wonderful job on a, a subject that's, you know, uh, difficult to, to, to look at because it is so sad and tragic. So um, also what came out of that experience of reading your book and talking to you was now I started going down this rabbit hole of ships and shipping, which is, as you know, is completely fascinating. And um, I want to talk about also how you and I know each other, uh, <laughs> which is basically, I think I wrote something about Ghislaine Maxwell on my, on my Prevail page, and you reached out to me 
after it came out that she was with that guy, Scott Forgerson, who was her boyfriend and now maybe is her husband. And you were like, holy shit, I know this guy. I've interviewed this guy. And, you know, you, you called me mm -hmm. up and sort of downloaded the data into my brain. So I wrote a piece about that, which we, we you know, which I, it was on the site long before the New York Times knew who this, anything about him, which was wonderful. I think it was the only time I've, I've scooped the New York Times. So thank you. But yes, why, well, don't, you, why don't you tell everybody about about this guy? Because you met him. And again, he's a, he's now kind of a key figure in this one of the crimes of the century kind of uh, situations. So. And a shadowy one too. He's been very smart. He he has not spoken to the media at all. So I feel just dumb luck that that I you know sat in the same room with him for a bit. So the story behind Scott is that you know my book came out, and it, it's funny. There's this strange thing that happens maybe to all writers, maybe just to female writers, maybe to female writers who write maritime books. I don't know. The, the pool is getting smaller and smaller here, but. Um, the, the phenomenon is that men, and only men, no judgment, um, reached I'm out taken. to me <laughs> um, and they wanted me to write their biographies mm -hmm. and or autobiographies or maybe maybe uh, ghostwrite their biographies or whatever it was. And so this, this started happening a lot. And um, so the first person actually to reach out to me was the former mayor of Miami and his name was Phil Levine. And um, we ended up sitting down and having coffee and he made it very clear that he was interested in that. And I was like, uh, okay, um, you know, sure. Uh, it wasn't something that I was going to do because I don't do that kind of thing. But, you know, that was the beginning of this phenomenon. Now, when Jeffrey Epstein, I guess when, after Jeffrey Epstein killed himself, <laughs> um, <laughs> I just used air quotes there, folks. Yep. Um, it turned out that um, Epstein had 13 numbers, contact numbers for reaching this guy, Phil Levine. So, um, so he seems to have been somehow involved with all of that as well. I mean, that little black book yeah. that that um, that that uh, journalist got a hold of. I don't know. Did you? I don't know if you saw you you heard about that, but I mean, somebody got a hold of that little black book. And, oh yeah, I forget yeah. who it was, but no, you could go you could go through and see who was in there. Simon yeah. Lebon is in there. It's really disappointing to me personally. Oh, I'm so sorry, Greg. Are, yeah. are you a Duran Duran fan? I am. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry about that too. Okay. Yeah, anyway, okay. so <laughs> so the next person to reach out to me was this guy Scott, and it turned out that Phil and Scott knew each other. Um, and Scott said, "Hey, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm former Coast Guard. I'm here in Boston." I'd love to talk to you, you know, would you like to come in? And I, because I, I'm a, I'm a journalist, you know, I chased down every lead, right? If it sounds interesting. So I hopped on the train and went down and I met with this guy. And um, of course, at the time, nobody had any idea his relationship to any of this. Right. But my impression of him, you know, being here in Boston, and I'm sure a lot of other places too, but you, you kind of know that tech bro profile, right? Um, they're always trying to sell you something. There's, there's a lot of hyperbole and hype about what they're up to. And, um, you know, they talk really fast. They throw a lot of acronyms and other things around. And um, obviously they're really passionate about what they're doing, but they're also always in raising money mode and, and raising PR mode. So that was my first takeaway. I was like, okay, tech bro, that's fine. But what he was doing was really, really, really compelling. And if he can pull off what he intends to pull off, what he said he was trying to do, 
it could make people incredibly wealthy. It could also help people do all kinds of super nefarious things. So I'm happy to tell you about what he told me about what his company does. If you don't, if you think folks would be interested. Oh, I, I, I think folks would be interested <laughs> to hear what Ghislaine Maxwell's maybe husband, Scott Borgerson is up to. Yes. Okay, great. Please do. So, okay. Happy <laughs> to do this. So, so his, his company is called Cargo Metrics and I believe he started it, I would say about eight or 10 years ago. Here's the deal. Um, Every commercial ship in the world carries something called AIS, which is like GPS, but for ships. And so the idea is that they report their location, it pings off a satellite, and then there are these aggregators, um, their websites where you can geolocate any ship, any commercial ship in the world. And um, it's really quite amazing. So there's this website called marine traffic dot com. Uh, there's another one called Vessel Tracker. And you, I, anybody can go onto these websites. It's really quite amazing. And I mean, as I'm speaking, there are 50,000 large ships out there right now carrying everything under the sun, right? Some of the ships are cargo ships. So they've got those big containers on them. Some of them have thousands of containers on them. And others are what are called bulk carriers. So they're carrying all kinds of things. They might be carrying grain, they might be carrying cobalt, they might be carrying oil or, you know, you name it. So here's the deal. We can track the ships. Right. But we don't know what's on the ships. Mm. And even a captain of a ship doesn't get a complete manifest. So captain, a captain could like sail across the sea with you know thousands of boxes on his or her ship and, and look out at those boxes and you just have no idea what's inside right and just about and I, this might have changed but but maybe one percent or less than one percent of those boxes those containers those huge containers are actually you know investigated are actually you know checked by anybody sure you know, import because they're packed somewhere else they're brought to the port and then they're loaded on and just like, get the hell out of there. Because as long as you're in port, you're not making money. So Scott's idea was, is there a way to figure out what's on all those ships? And if I can do that, then I can use that information to start, start making bets about global markets. Mm. So we're talking about, you know, futures and shorts and all the stuff that I try not to know too much about because my brain is already stuffed with useless information, but yeah, yeah. you know, that's one way to use this information. So if you know that there is a lot of, you know, raw material X going to country Y, you could make all kinds of bets about commodities or what that country is up to. That's kind of the idea. And from what I understand, he had a hedge fund that was, that was supposed to be working with this data um, to try to make all kinds of bets and make people rich. And that's a great idea. That's a really, really great idea. It almost feels like cheating because it just seems like if you could crack that code, that'd be really easy. But the only way that you can really crack that code is um, by being able to crunch a huge amount of data. And Amazon now makes it possible. You know, you can actually use their servers um, and uh, just like their supercomputers, you know, and crunch tons and tons and tons of data. So the question is, 
you get the data in, you're crunching the data. How do you organize that data to make it useful? And that's basically what he was offering from my understanding to private investors. So if I were a private investor, I could say what I'm really interested in is understanding, you know, grain movement or, or iron ore movement or whatever. And you could start to get a global picture of what the heck was going on. Can you, can you understand? Does that make sense? Like, does that? No, that, it that? makes total sense. I'm trying to think of other applications for this and why someone like Ghislaine Maxwell would be interested okay. in it, which would be, this is what's off the top of my head. You'll think you'll, you have thought of this, so you'll okay. know a better thing. But like, if you're, if there was a situation where you really did know what was on all the ships, it would make the job of customs much easier because they wouldn't have to inspect certain things, only other things. And then they could basically conceal whatever it is they were smuggling through the software. They could just, you think? they huh. could put a back door into the software and be like, oh, this, this ship has grain. These boxes have grain on it. And in fact, they don't have grain on it. They have, you know, uh, Arms. assault weapons or, um, I don't know, well, so, people. So you're, 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 and people, yes. Um, so you're, you're definitely on the right track. I'm not saying that he would ever do this. I'm not saying that this is a thing. But, no, no, no. We don't want to mm -hmm. even dare to impugn the guy whose moral compass yeah. is so wonderful that he's been with Ghislaine Maxwell. We would never hey, suggest... who knows if he knew anything about her background. Yeah. She's just this, like, yeah. sexy, hot, you know, older British woman. Yeah. Let, we'll get Tech to that Tech Pro doesn't know how to use Google. News at 11. Well, I mean, how much information was really out there, you know, about Ghislaine until the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing blew up? Like, you could look up her father. You could say, okay, it's not a great family, but how much do we really know about her? I don't know. It depends on when they got together. I mean, she's been in that. The, the Epstein stuff has been out for a long time. So yeah, but yeah. I mean that. But she. But the the. Well, anyway, that I mean, from what I understand, the one case that she was implicated in was probably sealed, right? The one in um, Florida back in two thousand eight. Yeah. You know, Je Jeffrey, it seems, was able to protect her. So I don't. I don't know how much was actually out there, but. Yeah. So the point is, um, so 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 why would Scott? Why would Galen and Scott be interested in each other? I mean, my, I have so many theories, but I think one of the strongest is just that you know she is very very good at grooming people, right? That's yeah. something that she does extremely well. She did it with Jeffrey Epstein, and um, you know he was just, uh, he, from what I understand, he was socially awkward, rather nerdy, maybe a little insecure, and she was able to kind of bring him out, you know, into finer company um, and, you know, help him out. And it's funny when you look at the early videos of him uh, at parties where, where you see like Trump and other people, you can, you can tell from his body language that he, he was an awkward kind of guy. He was, yeah. he was a little smaller, you know, he must've been a math genius from what I understand, but I don't think he wasn't glitzy like those no. folks. That wasn't his world. He was from Brooklyn and he, you know, he very much wanted to be that, but I, I could see him, I could see Ghislaine who was very much part of that, you know, and, yeah. and very well versed in all that, just being able to burnish his Im image, if you will. And then, you know, it's funny because very few people talk about the fact that then she was married to the gateway guy, right? You know who I'm talking about. The, I don't know who you're talking about. So the guy who founded, you remember gateway computers with the cow? South Dakota. He lives in, okay. They're based yeah. in South Dakota, right? Gateway, yeah. I mean, are they still even around? Are no, I don't think? think they're still around. There's the Cal, so you, South Dakota Gateway. I can't remember his name. Sure. So why isn't anybody talking about this? So, so after Jeffrey Epstein 
Um, she she was married to the gateway guy, and um, I apologize to him. I am blanking on his name, but um, she did the same thing with him. Him, so he, obviously he was a very smart, nerdy tech guy. He he founded this company. Probably had a lot of money, and she groomed him. And you know, at first he was some kind of like five hairs pulled back into a ponytail kind of you know schmucky looking guy, and you know then he transformed, um, bought a boat, um, a yacht, because I think. She really likes oceans. And then things fell apart. I'm not sure why they fell apart. And then almost immediately she she found Scott. So I think that there's there's a trend here. You know, smart, hmm. nerdy guys who who really could use that shine and polish and introduction to fancy world. Because yeah. it's exciting, right? Yeah. But also with with Scott. I think, um, as I as I said from the very beginning, I think he was really interested in raising money, and um, he did mention to me that he was he specifically used the word oligarchs that you know he was flying around the world meeting with all kinds of folks, and oligarch is a judgment term, right? It's not like yeah. <laughs> it, it's not like you can put that on a business card, so you know, that he was tossing around with me the term oligarch, like I'm meeting with oligarchs in Turkey and Greece, said to me that, you know, it was a thrill for him. And maybe Ghislaine was helping connect him to some of these folks who could invest in his company and take advantage of what he was offering. Very interesting. He's, isn't he really tall? He's kind of yeah. strapping. <laughs> Do you think he's strapping? I don't know. Um, I don't so remember. He's, I haven't studied the. Uh... <laughs> so he's um six. He must six five, six. He's big. Yeah, just trying to you know just 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 throwing the data points out, trying to put the puzzle mm -hmm. pieces together, and thinking about the movement of things. I I think we should point this out: the the flow of of stuff from port A to port B, is basically you know that's what the mob does. That's what organized crime lives on. Obviously, plenty of legitimate businesses also live on it, but organized crime needs logistical operations to function. Otherwise, the heroin can't get from Afghanistan to where it's going. The cocaine can't come up from South America. Um, the, the people can't come over from wherever they're bringing them in from. Uh, the guns can't come from here and there. They need the logistics. They need the ships. Absolutely. Did you ever read Gamora? No. About the Italian mafia. So um, it's the opening scene in Gomorrah is just something I will never forget. And it's it takes place in um, Naples, yeah. at the port in Naples. And um, I don't know if this actually happened. I guess it probably did. But um, a crane was loading a container onto a ship and somehow the container burst open and all these corpses fell out onto the deck of the ship <laughs> and it turns out that the china that the chinese workers who had been shipped over from china to italy to make the pro the, the i'm not going to say product but you know the fine made in italy goods at cut rates right they made a deal with the mafia or with the mob or whatever that they would that their remains when they died would be repatriated to china and this is how it was being done. Wow. 
wow. and shipping containers. So, I mean, I have to hope that they didn't die in the shipping containers, that these were just bodies of people who had died and they, yeah, this, they, had, they were very unceremoniously being repatriated to China. Yeah. Now the, the the mafia would never they would never you know do anything. They would never do that, that, right? Yeah, yeah. No. Have you been to Naples, by the way? I have not. I've been to Italy a couple times, but not to Naples. How about you? I went to Naples. For, we were there for like half a day on our honeymoon, and uh, my people are from there. My 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 Italians are from the, the Naples area. There's a town called Soma, which is on a volcano. You know, talk about a of bad course. real estate idea. Maybe, <laughs> maybe don't you know build your house on the side of it's a volcano. Cheap. Yeah, very, Look at the very prices. My grandfather uh, used to, to drive. It. He was just, he drove like a maniac all the time. And I never, under, you know, in this little quiet New Jersey suburb where we lived. And then I went to Naples and I was like, oh, okay. Now I see why he drives like this because I've never been more terrified than in the cab driver, you know, in the cab in Naples with the oh guy just God, yes, careening around time. like like there was just no tomorrow. And it, it was terrifying. Um, well, it's funny because um, actually, let me just add this. So part of my research for my book, I took a container ship from Italy to the United States and the container ship was an Italian ship. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up getting a bunch of stories from, from the captain and the mates and one of the, and, and they were telling me about Naples and how insane it is. It sounds like it's just one big illegal drug bazaar in the center of the city that like there's just one area where you just don't go because it's just everybody's just dealing drugs out in the open all the time. I don't know. That's that's what they told me. I mean, I did not do that on my honeymoon, so I don't know. I can oh. neither confirm nor deny. Um, <laughs> we took the boat those, to Ischia like, where where, you know, that sort of thing was not was not happening. It wasn't but like I wouldn't an be surprised. Airbnb, you know, like special towards the drug tour through Naples. Yeah, it'll be like yeah, that's perfect. You know, bored American. Let's show me the show me the seedy underbelly of Naples. Yeah, that, that's like a bad movie introduction right there. You know, I can totally see it. Why is it so easy for me to see? <laughs> because it's like every third movie on like Hulu is that. You know, it's some oh my God. you know dumb Americans <laughs> in places where they should not be. Um, okay, it could wait. be just about anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Rachel Slade. It's where you learned. At least 83. Trump is a Russian asset. That it's time to establish a direct contact with Donald Trump. January 6th was never just a political rally. An insurrection, an attempted overthrow of the federal government. The origins of coronavirus. Accidental leak, non-intentional, of a laboratory that was doing research on these viruses. How the Crown covered up child abuse. The vast majority of those people never imagined for one moment they were effectively participating in the concealment of child abuse but they did rudy is probably in violation of a faro law and the truth about jeffrey epstein i'm zev shalev join me at narrative it's where truth lives at narrative.org or wherever you get your podcasts there is a world beneath our own created over a century ago by America's original gangsters, Meyer Lansky, Lucky Luciano, Al Capone. And it was infiltrated almost immediately by the world's most formidable spies. The new podcast, The World Beneath, illuminates 
the untold 100-year history of mobsters and spies. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. <laughs> okay, we're back with Rachel Slade, author of Into the Raging Sea. We just covered a bunch of things. I'm moving on my list. I want you to talk about a subject near and dear to your heart, which is the Jones Act, something oh, that is actually not just one act. It's 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 a couple. So you'll, <laughs> you'll explain this because people listening either know exactly what it is or have never heard of it before. And once you hear it and kind of understand it a little bit, it pops every time you read about it in a news story, I have noticed. It's and true. So first of yeah. all, what is the Jones Act? Why is it important? And why should we be for it? Okay. <laughs> yeah, actually, this is this is where I had to school you because uh, yeah. So um, the Jones Act is actually uh, it's it's kind of a misnomer. Um, it generally refers to refers to a law from 1920, which says that any ship that um, moves goods between American port and American port must be owned by an American company. It must be the ship itself must be built in America. And it must be, if possible, crewed by Americans. I just want to say before we get into this that this actually we it's we call it the Jones Act. It's based on the 1920 law, but this is actually one of the oldest laws in America. It was one of the first laws in America. It was part of Alexander Hamilton's whole like get this country, get get mm. the commerce and the industry and all that together really fast so we can start collecting taxes um, and protect our own industry against, you know, the much more mature uh, economies of, you know, France and England and all those others. So these are not, this is not a unusual law um, for, for mature economies. Um, everybody wants to protect their shipping because the idea is, well, there, there are a number of reasons, and one one reason is economic, but the other reason is actually defense. So the defense argument is a little easier for me to talk about because um, it's just so obvious. So we have a navy, obviously, we do, but the navy is actually kind of small, and in some ways highly specialized. We have these like really crazy expensive ships, like the Zumwalt. You can look it up when you get off. Um, which actually has rail guns or something like that, which I understand have never worked. But anyway, these are like multi-billion dollar ships and we have one or two that maybe function. So the, the Navy has a few like very highly specialized ships, but if we're really gonna protect American interests on the ocean. You actually need much more than these specialized ships. You need kind of a whole Navy and forevermore, ever since this country was founded, um, we've relied on commercial ships to fill in the gaps that our standing Navy doesn't have. So, you know, starting from the very beginning, commercial ships were actually uh, commandeered to help fight the American Revolution, um, the War of 1812, all the way up to World War II, the Vietnam War. Um, you need commercial ships doing the hard stuff. Okay. like moving arms, moving men, women, and supplies. So the Jones Act guarantees that we actually still have a commercial shipping industry, right? right. That, that is ours, that, that isn't Switzerland's or 
Norwegians. It's ours. We we own it. They're Americans and they're dedicated to the American cause. And so if we ever, God forbid, have to fight somebody else, we can turn to our fellow Americans and say, hey, you've got a bunch of ships. Can we use those? And they will, we hope, say yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have a whole bunch of people who are trained and who do this day in and day out. They're, they know they know the shipping industry, right? And because they're doing it, they're actively doing it. Um, so they're ready for to, they're, they're ready. And I also want to mention that actually during World War II, the U.S. Merchant Marine, now remember they're, they're, they're civilians, but the U.S. Merchant Marine lost more men per capita than any of the armed forces. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. I did not because know. They were, because they were sailors, they were mariners, and they were, were basically enlisted, kind of. They were hired by the American military to sail these very slow moving ships across the Atlantic and across the Pacific to um, provide supplies for those wars and they're slow ships. And sometimes they didn't even have like a, a, any kind of Navy backup. And so they were perfect targets for, for U-boats and German air and, and uh, Japanese um, torpedoes. And that sort of sitting ducks, sitting ducks. Yes, yeah, they were sitting ducks. So yes. you mentioned all that, which I didn't know. And it's also, it makes sense too, that we don't want foreign ships owned by God knows who going up the Mississippi into, from one, one town to the next that uh, without anybody knowing who's on the ship, where it comes from, is it, is it, you know, you could smuggle nuclear weapons in, God knows what, what could happen. So I think, I mean, that's, that's part of it too, right? The, you know, not having these foreign owned vessels right in a port, is that part of it? Yeah, I mean, obviously on our coast, we have um, foreign vessels coming yeah. and going all the time. But yeah, that's right. On the interior, um, when you're talking about the Great Lakes, hello, mm -hmm. <laughs> huge shipping industry up there, um, or you're talking about Miss, the, you know, the Mississippi River, absolutely. Like you want to know who's there and you want to be able to protect your, your interior waterways. So it's a very, very important law from a, from a defense perspective. And then there's the economic perspective. And um, that's a little more complicated, but it's not when you start to understand how uh, the Koreans and the Chinese, and I guess to a certain extent, the Japanese have really, um, through controlling shipping and controlling shipping costs, have been able to really push their exports into the United States and other major markets like this. You know, in Korea, um, the shipping industry is basically state-owned and state-run. Um, it's more complicated than that, but um, it's it's essentially that. And it's the same in China, right? It's essentially state-owned, state-run. And that means that, you know, they can keep prices super cheap. And as soon as shipping gets cut down to almost nothing, the cost of shipping, that's when Americans started offshoring so many parts of our supply chain and actually sometimes entire manufacturing started to get done overseas because shipping was cheap super right. cheap interesting and so you know because we offshored so much um we gave away a lot of intellectual property you know when when you allow the chinese or whatever to make your product from soup to nuts from beginning to end then they know how to do that and they yeah, can they copy do. that and then, you know, when they're subsidizing all of their shipping industry, then they can send it to you, back to you for no cost of, at no cost at all. And that means we don't got nothing to do anymore. We, we're not making things anymore. 
right. which is which, what my next book is about. <laughs> right. We're going to get to that. We're going to, we're going to okay. end on that. Cause I can't, that, that it's so, I can't wait for that book. I'm really excited mm. about it. So in the town where, where I live in upstate New York, when we first moved there, okay, I would read the local paper to try to figure out what the deal was with local politics. And there was this one guy, this local business owner who was such an obvious buffoonish asshole, selfish dick, even though everybody in the town is a Democrat, right? So it doesn't, you can't go by political party. You have to go by what, so it would get to the point where I could tell if he was for something, whatever it was, I know that I was opposed to it. So this is the thing about the Jones Act, which I found fascinating is that all the rich people want to get rid of the Jones Act. Like every time you go on Twitter and write about the Jones Act, there's some dude whose job it is to mm -hmm. find your threads and just try to refute them. Because the Cato Institute guy, yeah. yeah. It's like his job. Mm -hmm. It just, is actually, just no, it is. Sail is the waters job. of the internet looking for people that dare speak ill of the Jones. And it's like, if, if, if the opponents of this are that well-funded, I mean, that's a little bit scary, I guess. So, you know, I, I feel like it's, a, it's an analogous situation. It's interesting because, yeah, so, so the, you're talking about the Cato Institute guy and um, yeah, he's very much there. It's amazing. He just pops up like that is his full time job. But um, fortunately, this is at the moment, I think, well, it's a very union strong um, industry, American shipping right yeah. now. And, um, you know, the unions are constantly lobbying to ensure that this thing doesn't go away. And fortunately, there are a lot of, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm surprised I'm gonna say this, but there are a lot of very smart people in DC who really understand the defense defense mm -hmm. of the Jones Act. Like they really, really get it. And yeah. they would never ever get, I don't think, get rid of the Jones Act. And now fortunately, you know, with um, Biden in power, who's very, very pro-labor, he, I, I don't think he would ever consider getting rid of the Jones Act. Also, I can tell you Ron Klain, who is um, his um, chief of staff, did read Into the Raging Sea. He was one of my first fans. We had a little Twitter back and <laughs> forth. So I, I know that he he's very well aware of the problems with the American shipping industry right now, what it's facing, but also you know the importance of the Jones Act. So I, I think we have a, a very Jones Act friendly administration. And there are a lot of smart people who just will let folks talk about how expensive it is for Americans and American shippers to have to deal with this regulatory piece, piece of legislation. But, you know, ultimately they can shut the hell up. <laughs> I think. Amen. I think. Now, spe speaking of people in Washington who feel uh, some way and have some power over the shipping industry, Elaine Chow, <laughs> Lane Chow is the sister of the woman who runs now runs her father's company, which is one of the largest shipping concerns in China, like plugged into the Chinese government. As you mentioned, Chinese shipping is heavily regulated, if not outright, just controlled by the communist Chinese government there. Can I do that? Are we allowed to do Can we get our Tucker Carlson on the communist Chinese government? <laughs> um, but, but in all seriousness, you know, these people are very connected to high levels of Chinese government. That's Elaine Chow's family business. She is, first of all, married to Mitch McConnell, whose net worth skyrockets as soon as he gets married because, you know, now he's married into wealth. And also, she's the fucking secretary of transportation. Like, 
Yeah. How big of a conflict? <laughs> is that the biggest conflict of interest of all time? Like, where does it rank? I don't know. Tell us about Elaine I mean, Chow. So uh, in the Trump administration, was that the biggest conflict of interest? No. <laughs> and if you're talking about shipping, you know, you also want to talk about Wilbur Ross because um, he didn't give up any of his shipping in interests while he was, you know, um, he was Secretary of Commerce, right? So, um, yeah, on the scale of uh, hmm, head scratcher, maybe this person shouldn't be making decisions about this particular thing. It's interesting because I actually spoke to the um, former director of Merit, which is on the maritime uh, the maritime administration, which actually over which which fell under um, the Department of Transportation and kind of controls a lot of what we're talking about right now. And she was actually seen as pretty damn competent in the Department of Transportation, but that's not to say that she wasn't cutting certain deals or throwing her weight around maybe in China and, and in the shipping industry in general to just get small favors done. I think, you know, from what I understand from my sources during the Trump administration, there were two camps. There was the anti-Jones Act camp. And then there was the camp that was absolutely convinced that we were about to get into a war with China. And I don't know where people stand now in terms of, is China really a military threat? But I think that shapes your worldview um, when you're talking about what's happening on the high seas. Yeah. Because China generally, and again, the high seas, like we have a tendency to just sort of be like, oh, that's that thing, right? It's water and it's out there, it's beyond our shores. Like, <laughs> But you know, China has been very, very, active in basically trying to control ports around the world and bodies of water around the world. And their, their circle of influence, their sphere of influence continues to grow and grow and grow, especially when we're talking about in the Pacific. So Elaine Chow, I mean, we know from the New York Times report that you know, she she used her position of power to make introductions in China for um, her 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 family's company, mm -hmm. and I know that her family's company actually got major loans from um, China to construct ships um, in China because that's where they were building the ships. So, I mean, was our security threatened by all that i don't know maybe it just made everybody in her camp a little bit richer yeah. i guess what i'm saying is i don't know if she's actually i don't know if she or her family is actually a threat i think what we have to think about a lot more is that economically we are seriously do you believe me are you going to believe me we're seriously fucked if we don't really understand the implications of losing manufacturing. Mm. See, now this is a good segue into, into the last <laughs> thing, which is the book that you're writing. So um, I'm just thinking about if I should go back to the Chinese thing for a second, because okay, just, to, just to hammer the point home that you were making, I mean, China's doing this new Silk Road thing where they're trying to expand basically their trade to everywhere. And as I understand it, they you know, they control so much of global shipping in terms of percentage 
that there are issues now that people can foresee. Like they could, if they wanted to, much like how the Middle Eastern countries and OPEC can, can control the flow of oil, the Chinese could, if they wanted to, fuck everything up by, by just slowing down or curtailing the, you know, the global shipping. Not that they have any financial incentive to do that, but they could. Um, and we know, you know, global shipping, as great as it is most of the time, all it takes is, is, is one bad turn in the Suez Canal and everything grinds to a halt. So exactly. I don't know. I, I, it's well, interesting so, about, yeah. So what's happened now is that sh- the, the price of shipping is three times what it cost a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's really important to understand because that's going to affect the price of every single thing you buy. Because whether or not it's made in America, it's got components coming from all over the world. Right. And here's here's the deal. Um, you know, we gave up, we Americans pretty much gave up ocean shipping 40, 50 years ago. We don't really do that anymore. The only American ships left are um, Jones Act ships. So they're they're moving stuff from from American port to American port. They're not doing they're, most of them are not doing you know, the international shipping that the Chinese are doing. So, yeah, I mean, they do have us by the balls if, you know, if they decide to raise shipping rates, there just isn't a lot of competition out there. There's Maersk, which has some American ships. It's a, it's a Danish company. Um, there's, there's, there are Korean companies, but for the most part, like, we're super dependent on Chinese shipping at this point. And that is exactly why um, the Jones Act was kind of um, burnished in um, or you know, revised in 1920. Because um, during World War I, we had no shipping. America had no shipping. And um, all these countries, you know, all these European countries suddenly were, you know, embroiled in war. And our shipping costs went through the roof. So it became very expensive to import stuff and very expensive to export stuff. And when stuff is really expensive to export, nobody in the world can afford to buy your products anymore. Right. Even, if you, even if your products are relatively cheap compared to everybody else's, they can't, they can't ship them. Shipping is such a key component to, to your cost, right? Which is actually why Amazon, like Jeff Bezos, they're really smart, like they're buying ships. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you got to control this stuff or, or you, you can't be competitive. And here in America, we tend to say labor, labor, labor is the labor costs. Oh, labor and labor unions ruin America and everything else. But it, it's so much more complex than that. And shipping is, is a really big part of that cost. It used to be and it's becoming again. So I think everybody should just be talking about shipping like all the time now. <laughs> I mean, it's it's factored into the cost of everything. And, you know, I don't know if you saw, but um, inflation now is at 5%. We've experienced 5% inflation the past year or something like that. I I would argue that that's shipping. That's shipping right there. (laughs) Again, I told you the cost of shipping has tripled. Yeah, no, I know. I, I, I know from my own, you know, experiences with the stuff and you're right. We have to make sure that if, if, if the, um, you know, if the goods can't can't go, that we have stuff here that we're making and manufacturing because then we're screwed. I mean, the only thing that's helping us is the fact that if China is going to stop shipping out stuff, their economy is going to collapse also. So it's almost, in my probably naive thinking, I mean, I, I don't I don't think they have much financial in- incentive to crush us because we buy all their shit. Like, you know, if we don't, 
it doesn't really make you know that much sense. But this all comes back to you say shipping, but it also comes back to manufacturing and where manufacturing is and why manufacturing went offshore to begin with, which is that's what your new book is about. And it's so fascinating. So um, tell us yeah. a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Yeah. So actually, I mean, it started, of course, when I was researching El Faro, which was the ship that went down. But then um, when I was working at the Globe, I ended up publishing a piece by Catherine Eben. So she's a fantastic journalist. And um, she had put out a book. And this is before COVID. And it was all about- No, this is Ka Catherine Eban, right? From oh, you Vanity know Fair? She's been, yeah. she's been on this podcast, oh, Rachel. Oh, she's of course. great. She's great. Yeah, she's okay, wonderful. So you know. Okay. Oh, she's fantastic. So then, yeah. Oh, yeah. She's the best. And um, so then you know that 90% of all of our pharmaceuticals were being made in China and India. So, you know, that, <laughs> that I, I read bad. that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I read that and I was like, this, this sounds like it could be problematic. And then COVID, right? So here I am, you know, I wrote the book in 20, the book came out in 2018. Catherine's piece, I, I worked with her in 2019. So this is all pre-COVID, but I'm thinking, shit, man. Like there are a lot of things here that could add up to one major problem for all of us. You know, between the shipping and the manufacturing, if any one of these things were to somehow get screwy, we would be up Schitt's Creek. And then the pandemic comes. And it turns out, not only do we not have drugs and reagents to make drugs ourselves, right? I mean, that's the problem too. Right. Is that to make drugs, you need ingredients. And so, so we, don't, we don't have the basic ingredients. We don't have the facilities to make the drugs. And I, I apologize if Catherine has already talked about this. No, no, no. Um, no, we talked about the Kushner stuff. Yeah. Oh, okay, great. Okay. Yeah. Uh, wow. Okay, so so we have a drug shortage because the ships aren't coming. I mean, <laughs> whoa. And then we can't make our own protective clothing, right? Yeah. We can't make masks. So. In early 2020, you know, when the shit is like halfway through the fan. <laughs> Sorry, that's very visual. But um, Etsy, you know, Etsy, like yeah. the, the craft site, they put out a call to all of their sewers. I don't know if you know this. And they said, um, if you have a sewing machine and fabrics just lying around, could you please make some masks and sell them on Etsy? Because people need masks and they don't have them. Etsy. Etsy. Etsy, saving the real. day. Saving the day. I mean, they are appealing to middle, not to generalize, but middle-aged women, you know, hippies, anybody with a sewing machine. I remember the pictures. Yeah. Yeah. People like, yeah. I mean, it was like World War II with a victory garden. Like, please, ladies and men, anybody with a sewing machine, if you got some fabric in your in your goddamn closet, like pull it out, cut it up and start making masks for Americans. Like it was yeah. insane. And um, because a lot, a lot of companies that were equipped to do this just shut down, right? Yeah. Because we do have apparel manufacturers in America, but they, you know, everything was shut down. But people could do things in their living room or, or whatever their craft room. And so then suddenly there was this shortage 
of elastic in America. Yeah. Because, you know, every, they, to sew these things, you needed the elastic that went around the ear. And there was a serious supply issue because you've got a few companies now committed to making PPE. Like they're going to try to stay open. They're going to try to protect their workers as best they can. They were making apparel before. Now they're making PPE. They're making masks. They're making gowns. They're, they're figuring out how to do it. They're retooling their factories. And, and you've got all these individuals, you know, with their sewing machines, like, oh, you know, I'll chip in. And now there's no elastic in America. That's because crazy. there's no built-in supply chain for this kind of thing, right? It's a totally broken supply chain because we haven't been making shit for so long. Oh my God, yeah, right. I mean, is it? I mean, if, if that's not a really wake-up call, basic. I don't, I don't know what is. You know? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you know, before that, I, you know, I was one of those people from from a very early age. Uh, I was so obnoxious. I remember um, my grandmother coming back from Europe. And she had bought me a doll when I was really, really little. I probably had just learned how to read and I flipped the doll over and I go, weird, you know, you bought this in whatever Paris and it's made in China. Yeah, I was, I was that kid. <laughs> or Japan, wherever it was made. It was probably made in Japan because we're talking about, I'm very, very old. So, um, <laughs> and I remember my parents looking around like, oh, kid is so obnoxious when can we get rid of her um which goes back to the truck behind you my parents tried to kill me many times with, with our very dangerous 1970s or whatever toys but yeah so i've been thinking about this for a long time like why don't why don't we make stuff and isn't a problem that we don't make stuff and how are we going to make stuff again and can we do it the right way this time because there have been moments in american history that have been almost utopian when it comes to manufacturing. There, there have been moments when the, the people who got the capital together to, to pull together factories and machines and every, you know, all the infrastructure that you need to make things, when those people were sympathetic to the people who were running the machines. There have been a few moments in history when the operators and the owners were simpatico. Yeah. And so what fascinates me, and obviously that this is going to be explored in the book, are, are those moments when, when it was really working beautifully, and then why, why did it all go to shit? Yeah. So why does it break apart? What are the forces at work? Why does the government decide to do this? Because a lot of this is, isn't just, it doesn't happen out of the blue. It happens because of certain governmental policies, which is stuff you're going to talk about in the book, right? Do you have a title yet, by the way? I'm using the uh, adventures of one small company to help, to, to kind of guide us through all of the trials and tribulations of what it's like to make things in 2021 in America. Okay. And so right now my working title is American Hoodie because <laughs> they make hoodies. Right. And the hoodie itself is a fascinating object to me. I, I feel like, um, you know, it's, a, it's an American icon yeah. It is fully homegrown, and I'm going to talk about in the book that in the book. But just kind of the origin story of of the hoodie itself, and then how what it symbolizes has changed over time. Absolutely. So you know you can think of um, on the waterfront, you've got Marlon Brando with his hoodie, right? So it was a working man's thing, right? Mm -hmm. That's what the the guys on the docks wore, 
And then you've got like Rocky, you know, running up the Philly steps. I'm from Philly, running up the Philadelphia Museum of Art steps in his hoodie, that hoodie, that wow, working man's hoodie, right? It was warm. It had a hood. You didn't always have to wear the hood. It's great. I think it's actually the most perfect article of clothing ever invented by man um, or woman. Um, and then, and then you have hip hop in the nineties, right, right. which adopted the hoodie. Uh, and then you have you know, the you know the awful, awful, awful Trayvon Martin story, where you have young, usually black kids, right, getting attacked because they're wearing a hoodie, right. right? And I don't know if you remember, but after his death, after his murder, there was there was a ton of dialogue about like, you know, schools banning hoodies. Yeah, I remember. Shouldn't wear hoodies, and you know, parents telling their kids like, don't put the hood up. And you know, there were signs on banks that said like, if you have a hood, take it down. And because it it, it seemed like a way that you could obscure who you were, right? That right. you could. Sure. So it's kind of a. It, it, to me, it, it's it's so very American because it's been co-opted by so many different groups, but it's also um, it's just perfect article of clothing. You can unzip it when you're hot. You can put the hood up. You can take it off. So this company makes hoodies, you know, among other things. I, I'm also old, and we used to call these things sweatshirts <laughs> when I was coming up, whether or not oh, it really? had a hood. Yeah, it's a sweatshirt. Oh. It's not a hoodie. I, I didn't okay. start calling it a hoodie until like two years ago. Uh, <laughs> it's a sweatshirt. Sorry. The, the the group that you missed is the is the tech bro CEO guys you know Zuckerberg oh, shit, with yeah, his right. hoodie and and yes, um, the guy you. on billions in his hoodie which means that also like you said it's it's come from a place or a very working class thing into into an uh, uh, you know an upper class thing or at least a cool upper class thing where an artifact of clothing or an object of clothing has been basically appropriated by one class from another class yeah. Um, similar to to jeans, you know, like the same thing happened yes. with jeans. Like jeans used to be like working class, and then like all the you know the the rock band people wore jeans, and now my kids won't wear jeans because they're too formal. That's where that's where we're at now. It's just that it's too formalized. It's that's so gro- what do you like wear? Old people they wear. Uh, I call them sweatpants, but they're uh, joggers or whatever. Oh. <laughs> Good to know. Thank you for the tip. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it's funny because my my daughter and so this is funny my daughter just bought a whole bunch of things with her grandma who she hadn't seen in like almost two years because of COVID and um so she got this like pile of jeans but every single one of them has these enormous holes in them oh my right? god and they're really expensive yeah so I always wonder like you know that woman in Bangladesh whose job it is to just destroy the pair of jeans for um, the American market, what are they thinking? Yeah, they must what, hate what us so much. Thinking? It's so dumb. It's it's, you know, I have jeans. Once the jeans rip, they're useless because your knee pops out, and it's just it it it's not a good, you know. I I, I know there's style is best when form and function converge, in my opinion. Thank you. And that's yeah. why the hoodie is such mm-hmm. a wonderful artifact, as you say, because. It looks cool, but it's also warm. You can zip yeah. it. You can unzip it. If it's raining, you put the hood over your head. Exactly. I like you cargo pants. I like cargo yes. pants for the same reason. There's pockets the in my pants, pants, and they don't, the you know. Top. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's a good thing. You I know, like. You know what's funny about the the ripped jeans is that when you have multiple huge rips, as her jeans have in them, she's gonna kill me. They're really hard to put on. 
Yes. Yep. Yep. Right. Because you keep putting your foot through the hole. And then they the tear more. And then you go have to buy more jeans. It's really a great idea for these companies. So putting these on is actually an art. <laughs> She's going to kill me. Well, it used to be back in the day, you know, people used to wear those tight jeans and you used to have to have pliers to pull the zipper up. So, yeah. That's right. Yeah, jeans. There's always yeah, so a little bit of pretty... suffering for beauty. You know, that's, oh, that's... Oh, of course. I mean, mm -hmm. you don't suffer for beauty. There's something wrong with you. But yeah, so so I'm fascinated with the hoodie and I'm fascinated with this company. They actually uh, started based on ideology rather than interest in making a specific thing. They wanted to prove, it's a young couple, they wanted to prove that capitalism could be a force of good and build community. Like, they really wanted to re recreate that utopian ideal, which which very much started here in New England, and um, that's that's what they're doing. And so far, they've um, lifted seventy families out of poverty in in a town where there used to be industry, there is none now. They're they're building something, and um, I'm really rooting. I'm really rooting for them, but I'm also just rooting for all of us. I think I think you know we have. We, we rediscovered food, right? Yeah. Like 15 oh. years ago. Mm -hmm. Like we started, or maybe it was longer, but we started to care about, hey, who's growing my food? Where is it grown? How is it grown? And I'm really hoping that, that, we, that we start to think much more about the things that we put next to our skin. Like how much more, how, how much more intimate could that be? Yeah. Right? It's true. Um. You know, and, and you think about like the power of, of clothing, like when you think about, for example, Orthodox Jews and the talus, which is for folks who don't know, you know, it's, it's the prayer shawl. And if you're a certain sect of Jewish, then, then you actually like put that prayer shawl like right next to your skin. Yeah. But that's what we're doing all day long. When we put clothing onto our bodies, we are, we're, we're coming in contact with the whole process of making, right? the fibers, the weaving, the dyes, and the actual stitching of these objects. Like who made them? Where are they coming from? We should care. We should care. Well, not only that, but going back to the idea of a utopia, if we can bring back manufacturing to America, which high shipping and, and, and some sort of governmental policy to make it so, and, and a push to, for purposes of defense even, and self-sustaining, putting those places you know, if, if if some if Jeff Bezos say decided I'm going to create this company that sells clothes now, and I'm going to I'm going to put one factory in Wyoming, and I'm going to put one in South Dakota, and I'm going to put one in um, Oklahoma, say, people will move there. The population will go up, and if it's all these labor and union jobs, maybe those states turn blue, and we don't have the goddamn you know. <laughs> log jam in the fucking Senate. Like we have, there's lots of th ways that this could be good for, not just for clothes and good for everything and, and you know, improve the th the situation on the ground a little bit. Absolutely. You know, it's funny because I just joined the Boston Athenaeum and they have crazy documents, um, you know, from the 1700s. They have this just phenomenal collection of just weird things. And I found a treatise from, or a pamphlet, they call it, from 1753, where this guy is saying, oh my God, Boston, you know, it's filled with all these poor people and they don't have anything to do and they're wandering the streets and they're picking pockets and their children running around. And his solution 
was to create industry for them. So he, he wanted them to start making linen, growing linen um, and, you know, weaving linen and making it into clothes. He was like, industry will save us. And this was before it was America, right? So yeah, this is yeah. colonial times. And, you know, in America, we weren't, in North America, we weren't allowed to make things pretty much that the British were preventing us from creating industry, having manufacturing. Mm -hmm. We were not allowed to have manufacturing because they, they saw the colonies as a source of income. And so shouldn't it be extremely patriotic, extremely American to want to make things here by Americans? I mean, again, going back to the Jones Act and Alexandra Hamilton, these were the first things that he really cared about. He was like, we need to make things here. We need to be independent. We need to have our own economy that's about buying, selling, and making. And then ultimately, maybe if we get lucky, we can start exporting things, but it starts here. We need to be self-sufficient. And there was a time when we were, and I don't know, I feel like now is as good time as any to try again. And for all those naysayers out there, by the way, who say, you can't compete on labor cost with El Salvador, Honduras, or uh, China or Cambodia or Vietnam. Like it's just ridiculous to try to make a t-shirt here or, or a hoodie here or whatever it is. Guys, you are so very wrong because there are already companies that have been doing that for years and years and years very successfully. It's not the labor costs anymore that, that's gonna kill us. It's, um, it's just, it's much less of a factor now. It can be done. You just have to be very efficient. You have to, um, you have to do things right. But you can take care of people, and I'm going to show you how. <laughs> I can't. I, I'm I'm very excited for this book. See, that was a very rousing speech. It's a good. It's a good way to end the show here. What you're What you're really saying is, we want to build back up. We want to start having manufacturing here. We want to put. We want to emphasize the make, and make America great again. That's what we want to do. Make. Ooh. Yeah. They we take it. it. Now nah, we're gonna have to come up with a better slogan. But uh, something with make, though, you know. Yeah. Um, you build know, back I'm, better. I'm actually build back better. I like that. Um, somebody should make that their slogan. Uh, right. Yeah, it yes. seems like it's a good one. So um, I'm excited for American Hoodie when it comes out. And your book is called Into the Raging Sea, which again, I can't I can't recommend highly enough. It's really, you know, it, it's just a magnificent work. When, when I finished reading it, I was like, I can't believe you did this. This is such a, it's it's such a, as a writer and person, it's an, it's such an impressive accomplishment to, to follow through with that story and the, the difficulty emotionally of that reporting and to produce what you produce is really, it's just fucking awesome. So, um, wow, you know, great. I, Thank you so much. I salute you. And, um, you know, I have, I, I can't even, I'm just stunned that you wrote something this good, honestly. Not that you did, but that anybody did. Um, <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> anyway, you it, don't look like somebody who could do something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Into the Raging Sea is your book. You also have written a couple pieces for me at Prevail. So, check out Rachel Slade. Um, thank you so much for joining me. This has been fantastic. Oh, I've had such a great time. Thank you, Greg. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sophia Tereshenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs, Signet Della, Stephanie St. John, Brett Petticord, Ryan Byrne at History Falls Apart, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hawkey, Kenai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. 
please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the site and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall prevail. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great.